0: Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today we're going to hear episode 10 of my book, Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. This is the last episode dedicated to chapter 5 of my book, entitled to the ends of the earth. And in the last episode, there was a lot of focus on arctic expeditions, such as the Franklin, Weiprecht, and Greeley expeditions, and the dangers that they encountered for the benefit of science. I also showed how these efforts led to things like the first and second International Polar Years, as well as the International Geophysical Year, which led to the beginning of the Space Race. I also brought up how it led to Shadow Wars, and once again, we saw how nations and their defense and security worked to combat against open science for their own protection specifically with how the Soviet Union kept the rocket design of Sputnik secret so that the United States wouldn't learn the missile technology that they used for things like nuclear weapons. But the Soviet Union isn't the only country who did this, and today we're going to learn about a top-secret American project that I honestly had never heard about until I started researching for this chapter. There's also going to be a main figure of this episode as well, like Wyprecht was in the last episode, and this central figure is Peter Franken. If you've heard of him before, you are likely aware of his absolute legendary status as a human. But if you haven't, what I share with you today is really just a very short rundown of what this single individual accomplished. I had to read and listen to several things to be able to distill this amount of information related to Peter down. but there are people who tell his story way better than I do. I bring him up not only because he is absolutely awesome, but because he was part of one more Arctic expedition that I wanted to talk about, known as the Denmark Expedition, which went and tried to map the northeastern edge of Greenland. And, once again, people are going to die. And so then, also once again, we're going to focus on the Arctic as the background for this episode. I've been doing a lot of focusing on the dangers of the Arctic for civilization, whether it was when Pythias tried to reach it in Episode 1 and he ended up discovering Thule, or when I talked about the Greeley expedition when they went further north than anybody else had before in the civilized world. But... There have always been people there, at least for as long as civilization has been around, and those people are primarily the Inuit. I haven't forgotten about them, and while I touch on them in this episode, they get a much more pronounced episode later on as well. And you may have forgot, but at the end of chapter 4, I was discussing those three deep season cycles of Earth. Precession, which is that wobble the Earth has. Obliquity, which is the tilt of the Earth in space. And the eccentricity, or the distance the Earth is from the Sun during its orbit. Today, I'm going to start bringing it back around to those three deep season cycles, because in the next chapter we're going to get a better understanding of them. But I felt that I really couldn't get into them. I worried that the information would feel too dry if I didn't share all of these adventure stories first that helped get us to exactly understanding those three seasonal cycles. And that's why, in order to learn about them, we have to go to Greenland today. Don't forget, you can always like, rate, and review this podcast to help boost its presence for other people to find. Please consider donating if you are enjoying the podcast. You can get a free PDF copy of my book if you're interested. and. If you want to know when updates come out, you can always follow NoCharacterLimit at Mastodon.World. And of course, you can always email me at NoCharacterLimit at ProtonMail.com. Because the last two episodes were so long, we got a shorter one today. So, please enjoy the last episode of Chapter 5, To the Ends of the Earth. Chapter 5, Part 5, Greenland, Just Beneath the Surface A lot had happened over the 75 years between Greeley's tragic expedition during the first international polar year and the launching of Sputnik during the international geophysical year. Other adventurers in the late 19th and early 20th century explored beyond the discoveries of the Greeley Expedition, marking further achievements in the Great Uncharted North. Bit by bit, nations were revealing the poles to civilization. Greenland was a primary focus of these expeditions a giant island that had accumulated ice over tens of thousands of years, much in the same way Antarctica had over the course of millions. And like Antarctica, it had created a vast ice sheet that stacked thousands of feet above the surface of Greenland, Similar to how frost builds up into a hard ice on the inside of a freezer wall, this ice buildup led to a massive ice mountain blanketing the island below. Only around the coasts and the most southern parts of Greenland was the actual ground of the island ever seen. The world's largest island was mostly covered with blinding tundra and bottomless crevasses where few outsiders dared ever go, let alone stay. It was home only to the Inuit people, who had adapted to the area and knew its secrets just as the nomadic Touareg understood the secrets of the Sahara Desert. It was only inhospitable to those who had not adapted to it. In 1906, 25 years after the first International Polar Year and 51 years before the International Geophysical Year, a 20-year-old Dane by the name of Peter Freuchen decided to join the fateful Denmark Expedition to explore the northern reaches of Greenland. Freuchen was the sort of man that would be drawn to adventure his entire life, and this was where he was first tested. The purpose of the Denmark expedition was to find out the true size and layout of Greenland, as rumors about the great unexplored island had swirled for centuries. Seeing as Greenland was claimed by Denmark, the government decided to put some of their best explorers to this task. But at the time, Freuchen was not yet one of them, as he was just another young man foolish enough to volunteer for a journey into the deadly and beautiful reaches of the far north. He was a young man with no experience, and the Denmark expedition was his chance to cut his teeth. But it was with a chilling awareness. Those who took on this mission knew there would be a chance that they wouldn't return home. The Denmark expedition was not an easy one but Freuchen learned the ropes over the first year from some of Denmark's best explorers. In its second year, Freuchen decided to make a sacrifice for the team by volunteering to stay in an observation cabin built by the crew to collect information on the nearby ice sheet. The cabin was supposed to be built for two. But with so little building material, the 9 foot by 15 foot space would only be able to fit one person. So, Freuchen volunteered to stay behind in this tiny cabin, alone, for months. The rest of the team would continue on, leaving him behind as they explored other parts of Greenland leaving young Peter to take on the northern Greenland winter alone, where temperatures could drop as low as 90 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. When they left him, it was still before the autumn equinox, where the sun lay above the horizon both day and night. But as the darkness of the Arctic winter settled upon Freuchen for the next six months, things started to become truly dangerous. The most immediate problem was that he was not alone. Wolves had found him and were becoming increasingly bold. At first, the wolves kept their distance, but slowly, over time, they began to come closer and closer to the point where one day, Freikin stepped outside to find one of his sled dogs killed. One by one, the wolves would come for and devour each of his sled dogs, and Freiken could do nothing about it. After that, the wolves became so fearless that they started climbing onto the roof looking for a way in for Freuchen himself. Resupply sleds had trouble approaching Freken's cabin for fear of attack from the brazen beasts. This was Freuchen's chance to prove himself. If he couldn't subdue the wolves, then he knew that it would only be a matter of time for him. After one of the wolves attempted to get into his cabin, he decided that he would implement a plan. He waited for the wolves to leave, and then climbed up to his roof where he would set up some traps. As predicted, the wolves returned to his shed, but this time, one would get caught on his roof trap and be unable to leave with the rest of the pack. Once the pack left, Freuchen would climb to the roof and kill the captured wolf before resetting the trap and waiting again. The plan worked, and after the pack lost a few members in this way, they no longer bothered Freuchen as much. Freuchen also had the scientific task to observe the ice sheet which the cabin was built next to, and he would frequently climb it to explore the area when the wolves were not around. One day, despite it being eternally dark, during his explorations, he passed a large boulder along the edge of the ice sheet cliff and awoke a startled wolf. Freuchen, also startled, fell over the edge of the cliff off of the ice sheet in almost any other circumstance that would have meant certain death. But as luck would have it, Freken fell right into a pile of snow and was miraculously uninjured. As the winter pressed on, the walls of his cabin began to physically press in on him. Ice built up on the inside, turning his tiny hut into an increasingly claustrophobic tomb. With more experience in the far north, Freuchen had learned that singing loudly kept the wolves at bay, likely having earned their respect through the number that he had already killed but it was the madness of isolation that began to get to him most. The uncomfortable monotony of living in a small freezer surrounded by darkness at all hours of the day started to play tricks on Freken's mind. Freken was not immune to the maddening effects of the Arctic, the darkness, the low temperatures, Daily survival from predators and the elements, and the isolation. But after a year at his hut, the rest of the Denmark expedition returned, and he packed up with his scientific observations in hand, leaving his frozen little box for good. His initiation into the Arctic had been a success, and he came back home a national hero. But most importantly, he came back with his life. That's because not all of the members of the expedition survived. Three well-known and seasoned explorers who led the mission died over the two years in the Arctic. At the time, these men were far more experienced and well-known than Freuchen. The leaders of the Denmark expedition, Ludwig Milius Eriksson, Niels Peter Hagen, and Jorgen Braunland had explored the lands of Greenland with the likes of the famous Knud Rasmussen, perhaps Greenland's most famous explorer, known for traveling by dog sled from Greenland all the way to Alaska. These were the sort of men that the Danish government depended on to finally complete the map of Greenland and take important scientific data. While Freuchen was fighting against wolves and madness in his observation cabin, the three leaders of the Denmark expedition took on the most dangerous part of the mission for themselves. They separated from the rest of the group to map the most northeastern part of Greenland and dedicated themselves to bringing their country a completed map of the island, the expedition's primary objective from the start. But the warmer summer melted the snow and made it impossible to travel over, trapping the trio in the northernmost reaches of Greenland longer than expected. Stranded in the far north of the island, they raced southeast, the sun having permanently set for the winter and leaving them with increasing darkness and deadly temperatures. But things only got worse as starvation set in. They had no choice but to begin surviving on their emaciated sled dogs, trading their ability to travel more quickly. For their survival of just one more day. As they went from three sleds to two and finally to one, the three men were then faced with the grisly reality of their situation, their bodies slowly giving out one at a time, one by one succumbing to the elements. First to go was Hoge Hagen, followed by Milius Eriksson ten days later. The map, fully completed and preciously protected, would only later be pulled from the dead body of Bronlund, the last of the three to have survived, and who had made it to one of the food stash checkpoints where he wrote a final journal entry. He relayed that he only made it there under the light of a waning moon, and could go on no further due to his frozen feet and the darkness of a moonless Greenland winter. The trio had accomplished the mission's main objective, but at the cost of their lives. Denmark had lost three of its best explorers as a result of this expedition. Since Freken returned alive, this alone would have been enough to make him a historically significant figure. But his life was only just beginning. He was a brilliant and daring man who seems like he must have inspired the claymation character Yukon Cornelius of the 1964 version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. His skills at survival in the Arctic stood out enough that they caught the attention of the kingpin of Arctic explorers, Canude Rasmussen. And together, the two agreed to start a trading post on the desolate northwest coast of Greenland. They named it Thule after the medieval Latinized phrase that had come to indicate the edge of the known world, originally coined by Pythias about 2,500 years before. The name was apt because their trading post would be the most northern one in the world, and would draw the rest of human civilization to the land of the Inuit, whether they were ready for it or not. Freuchen and Rasmussen explored together for the first time on what would ultimately become seven Thule expeditions to explore all of Greenland, including the dangerous ice sheet that lay across the center of the island. The Denmark expedition mapped the edges of the island, but the interior was still largely unexplored. While Freuchen did not participate in all of Rasmussen's tule expeditions, he did come face-to-face with death countless times, from wolves, polar bears, and the elements. Together, they also laid to rest questions about the geography of the island's interior, because they could actually make the trip and return alive. Freuchen was a man that was larger than life, at six foot seven inches tall, over 300 pounds, and sporting a massive beard. He was also an avid writer and contributed to newspapers, magazines, and created more than a dozen memoirs and journals. Freuchen relayed that during one particularly bad storm on one of his explorations, that he ended up having to cocoon himself under his sled while he waited for it to pass. But as he lay there under his sled with the storm burying him, the moisture of his breath froze the snow around him and he accidentally entombed himself. The sled was now buried enough that he was unable to push himself free. This predicament alone is a testament to the extreme cold and weather that Freukin willingly submitted himself to during each of his Arctic expeditions. With barely enough room to move, his beard frozen into the ice, and no help coming, Most people would have died then and there, lost forever under the unforgiving tundra of the Greenland Ice Sheet. He certainly would not be the first nor the last to perish there if he had died then. But as the famous story goes, Freuchen used his own feces to fashion a chisel that dug him out of his frozen grave and he crawled back to his camp, where he immediately had to cut off several gangrenous toes with a pair of pliers while he was stone sober, because Freiken never drank. This incident ultimately led to him losing his entire foot, and forever after, Freiken would walk everywhere with a limp due to his wooden leg. Unlike Rasmussen, Freyken was not part Inuit, but he did embrace their culture, even as he captured the attention of the rest of civilization below for his feats of survival. When he decided to marry an Inuit woman, he chose not to have the ceremony in a church, and called out the hypocrisy on the part of the local clergy, who slept with the local women while claiming moral superiority over them. But Freuchen would lose his first wife to the Spanish flu, and then went on to marry the daughter of a Danish millionaire, and even later a fashion illustrator for Vogue, of which a famous picture exists of his monstrous size in a polar bear coat next to her petite frame in a fashionable dress, This might be Peter Freuchen's most famous picture. Freuchen's near-death experiences included nearly drowning in icy water, almost getting shot by another man, and getting attacked by wild arctic animals. Freuchen also went on to produce, star in, and win an Oscar for the movie Eskimo, featuring the Inuit, where he played a white villain who rapes the main character's wife, undoubtedly portraying an ugly reality of Western colonialism. The movie was primarily in Inuit language, subtitled in English, because Freuchen wanted to show the world a culture that survived in one of the planet's most inhospitable regions. When World War II came around, Freuchen helped Jews escape Europe through an island he owned in Denmark, and was so rude to the Nazis that he was ultimately imprisoned and sentenced to death. But in classic Freuchen fashion, he escaped the prison they put him in, and he climbed the fence with only one good foot, and hopped into a nearby car that was waiting for him. Eventually, he made his way to America, where he lived in New York City, and famously walked outside in winter without a coat. Then, just because he could, he won the television game show The $64,000 Question in 1956. Then in 1957, the same year as the International Geophysical Year, Freuchen boarded a plane to Alaska. He was going to fly over the North Pole as part of a television show documenting the Arctic. As the 71-year-old Freuchen reached his Alaskan hotel, he stubbornly insisted on carrying his own suitcase up the steps to his room. This man, who had lived a hundred lives, worked his way up each step on his wooden leg with all of his luggage, once again about to go back to the Great North. It was only when he had reached the top step that Freiken finally collapsed and died, never able to complete his flight. This legend of a man may well have been having a heart attack the entire way up that flight of steps, but pushed on regardless, refusing to accept help. When things got tough, Freakin rarely had anyone else around to help him, and likely held a mentality that if he couldn't help himself, then in many cases, no one else could. It's entirely likely that Freuchen pushed through drawing from some deep source of inner strength that he culminated from all of his near-death experiences in Greenland and elsewhere, so that when he finally reached his goal of that top step, life fled from his body, and he was gone from this earth. He was cremated, and at his request, his ashes were dumped over Thule which, by 1957, had become an air force base for the American military at the permission of Denmark. Despite Freuchen having founded the place, it was difficult for him to gain access to the old trading post before he died. Thule was established by Freuchen and Rasmussen with the expressed permission of the Danish government, which had an eye towards colonialism. Within Freuchen's lifetime, he watched the rest of the world descend onto the land of the Inuit, a culture he hoped to protect, but ultimately ended up being the catalyst that exposed them to the exploitation of the modern world. By the International Geophysical Year in 1957, Thule was one of the most northern air force bases on the planet, and it was the lifeline to the outside world for several inland radar stations and camps on the ice sheet of Greenland. It was within the lifetime of one man that the Arctic finally succumbed to the will of human civilization. Froyken had seen Greenland go from an unmapped island to being the home of a modern military base with radar stations spread across it. One of the radar stations lay 220 miles inland to the east, called N-34. It was one of two $1.6 million stations constructed in 1953 that could hold 16 men apiece, completely dependent on supplies delivered from the Thule Air Base. It took 90 men from the Army Corps of Engineers, all working together at the height of construction, to build the radar station for air control warning a protection against Soviet plane or missile attacks during the Cold War, where the threat of a nuclear strike was very real. N-34 was built nearly entirely under the ice, with 22,000 tons of cargo that had to be airlifted in, but once complete, there was barely a sign that the military base existed at all. And by 1957, only four years after construction, both radar stations were already set to be abandoned. But before the military abandoned N-34 for good, they maintained a small research base for scientists at the behest of the American government known as Site-2, about a mile out from N-34, but still 220 miles away from Thule. Site-2, aptly nicknamed Camp Fistclench, was little more than a giant half-buried barrel towering at 7,000 feet above sea level on the Arctic ice shelf surrounded by hundreds of miles of frozen, desolate, and inhospitable Ice fields. N thirty four and Camp Fistclench made the Thule Air Base seem cosmopolitan by comparison, as the researchers and military personnel around N thirty four and Camp Fistclench toiled away in monotonous and deadly frozen desert but it was out here in the middle of nowhere where something special was occurring. The researchers at Camp Fistclench were trying to use a new tool to drill into the giant sheet of ice below them for the first time. The purpose of this specific drill was what made it special. It wasn't meant merely to cut a hole into the ice, but instead it was meant to cut a cylinder of ice out of the sheet, intact, to be analyzed for its past. This was known as an ice core. The first ice core samples had been drilled between 1956 and 1957 for the International Geophysical Year, with Far less fanfare than the launch of the American and Soviet satellites, but just as critically important of an achievement. Camp Fistclench continued to operate for three more years, even after the military abandon N-34 in 1957. But it was a very lonely existence weather would often isolate the men from the Thule base, and sometimes they would mentally crack under the pressing monotony and loneliness, just as Freuchen had struggled with himself during the Denmark expedition and other Arctic explorations. It became clear that Camp Fistclench needed more stability, a better drilling method, and more human contact. All of these needs were attained in 1959, when the researchers moved shop to another desolate location on the Greenland ice shelf about 150 miles away from Thule to a new and improved secret base called Camp Century. Camp Century was home to the most ambitious American project in Greenland and was built using the lessons learned from Camp Fistclench. Like Fistclench, Camp Century was built under the ice, but this time it was powered by a miniature nuclear reactor that was shipped in from New York and sledded across the tundra by giant tractors called swings. A video of the Camp Century construction was declassified 40 years later in 1997, where they demonstrated how they dug out the holes for Camp Century with giant snow-blowing tractors. Then they built man-made barracks inside of them on stilts that neither melted the ice below or above them and covered the massive hole with a metal roof which would be hidden under the snow. The government claimed they got extra rations for all of their hard work, but the video also shows men handling radioactive rods with little more than a pair of gloves. To get to and from Camp Century, one often had to ride in one of the swings with tank-like treads that would crawl across the arctic tundra from the Thule airbase. Seeing as this was an American airbase on Danish soil, even if it was high up above the ground and deep below the ice, The Americans wanted to be sure that the world thought little else other than scientific research was going on there. Camp Century was being marketed as an affordable military experiment in how to work together in isolation. A sort of social experiment of how people could live together in space now that the space race was in full effect. Even the United States government could see the connections between the polar regions and the future of space travel. Television reporters were eagerly brought to Camp Century, where they were shepherded past the top-secret nuclear reactor and classified projects to the comparatively benign ice core drilling that was taking place elsewhere on site. The mundane drilling project had moved with the military from Camp Fistclench to Camp Century, and was the perfect distraction from the more secretive projects by the Americans on this distant ice base. The ice cores were special, according to the scientists working on the project, because the ice had allegedly captured the atmosphere of the past as far back as tens of thousands of years ago. But at the time, the ice cores pulled from Camp Fistclench and Camp Century were still, essentially, meaningless, as no one knew how to read these alleged ancient atmospheric bubbles trapped inside. A mysterious geological cipher still yet to be decrypted. The drill being used to cut the cores was now digging down thousands of feet below the surface, in a place that averaged 12 degrees below zero, a temperature that was often considered warm around Camp Century. But this scientific colony studying isolation and pulling out indecipherable ice cores was merely to distract from a much more ambitious military purpose that was going on at the same time. The true mission of Camp Century was to create a giant network of tunnels that would stretch over 2,500 miles beneath the ice sheet to shuttle around 600 nuclear missiles on ice shrouded subways. This unbelievably ambitious endeavor was known as Project Iceworm and the sole reason Camp Century was kept classified for decades. The plans laid out for Project Iceworm were grand enough to make any G.I. Joe villain jealous, but it never came to fruition. While studying the giant ice sheet sitting atop Greenland, it came to be known that the ice shifted at a much greater pace than anyone had predicted, ruining any chance for any long-term or stable ice tunnels. Once this realization occurred, the project was immediately abandoned. The nuclear reactor was deactivated and shipped back to the United States, where the remainder of the crew abandoned Camp Century, just as they had abandoned Camp Fistclench, but this time with a lot more toxic debris left behind, including nuclear radiation and PCBs that the United States military believed would remain entombed in the ancient ice shelf, forever. Thus, the only truly valuable achievement to come out of these massively expensive military projects was the large collection of indecipherable ice core samples pulled from Camp Fistclench and Camp Century. Efforts now turned to learning how to read these tubes of ice to learn about the Earth's past. And to do this, scientists needed to learn how to find the annual seasons that were embedded into the ice. From there, they could determine what effect the giant seasons of precession, obliquity, and eccentricity had on the Earth. Experiencing the seasons in the moment is one thing, but how could Thousands of years of compacted ice hold answers to the seasons long past, and who would learn how to read them? Understanding climate was going to be the key to understanding the history of Earth before humanity began keeping records. to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing, so if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow NoCharacterLimit at Mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at NoCharacterLimit at ProtonMail.com.